Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Gregory Maxwell Bruce, but he goes by Max. He's a lecturer in Urdu at the University of California at Berkeley and the translator of a brand new book just out at the end of 2019 with Syracuse University Press. The book is called Turkey, Egypt, and Syria, a Travelogue, and it presents an English translation of a well-known Urdu travelogue by Shibli Nomani, a 19th century Urdu language historian of Islam, who is also a professor of Persian and Arabic. Max, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Shibli Nomani, we'll call him Shibli. He's a major figure in South Asian studies, very familiar to scholars in that field, but may not be immediately familiar to Ottoman and Middle East historians. And he's also not a totally straightforward person to introduce. So I will let you, you know, explain for our listeners all the many hats he wore and kind of, you know, who is the author of this travelogue. So Shibli was born in 1857 and died in 1914, which are very interesting years. Uh, 1857, of course, marks the transition from colonialism to imperialism in British India. And 1914, of course, is the beginning of the First World War and the kind of changes uh, uh, brought by the First World War. And so Shibley uh, was educated at home, uh, but he studied with some well-known scholars uh, who taught Arabic literature, the rational sciences, poetry and eventually got a job as a professor of Arabic and Persian at a colonial college where he was uh, required to prepare students uh, who would go on to become major figures in Urdu literature, in South Asian political history, to help them to pass the colonial exams. And that was his job. <laughs> it was during that early period of his life uh, that he was exposed to certain forms of historiographical writing uh, and uh, became a, a fairly well-known historian in his lifetime and then later became a very well-known historian in his lifetime. So by the time that he wrote the travelogue, he had written a biography of Mamun, the Abbasid Caliph, and also uh, a biography of um, Abu Hanifa, the founder of the sort of Hanafi school of jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, then he traveled uh, to the Ottoman Empire hoping to collect materials for the scholarship that he was interested in producing, uh, biographical studies of what he called heroes of Islam, mm. uh, as well as histories of uh, translation uh, into Arabic. He wrote on theological topics. Uh, he ended up writing biographies of uh, Umar, uh, the second uh, Khalifa of the Sunni tradition, uh, and also um, Ghazali and other figures. He's a fascinating figure in his own right. It's also an extremely interesting time sort of within Ottoman history during the reign of uh, Abdul Hamid II. This is, uh, we were talking a little earlier about, you know, the height of pan-Islamic thinking or, or sentiment. So why is it that Shibli kind of heads to the Ottoman Empire to acquire the materials for the kind of work he wants to do back in British India? That's a great question. And there, we have some evidence to tell us why he left and his letters and there's some discussion of that in the travel log and why he traveled to the Ottoman Empire. Um, it seems to me that uh, he went there with a, a number of agendas. There wasn't one mm. agenda mm -hmm. motivating his travels. One of them was, as I mentioned, to collect materials uh, for uh, the scholarship that he was hoping to produce. And he felt that he didn't have enough materials in India to work with. Uh, another was uh, because he was a part of this colonial college, mm -hmm. uh, which was still sort of 
shaping its institutional identity. He appears to have been charged by the founder of the college, Saeed Ahmad Khan, who was a very famous uh, sort of reformer and writer. Uh, he was charged by Saeed Ahmad Khan to go to the Ottoman Empire and to look at educational institutions and look mm. at libraries mm-hmm. uh, and to study them. Uh, and to bring back information, and to bring back books, uh, to purchase books, uh, not only for his own scholarship, but for the college library. And so he was also in the Ottoman Empire uh, as an institution builder, mm-hmm. uh, not just as a as a research scholar. And I think he was there uh, to travel. I mean, he was also a part of. I mean, he he studied this rich tradition of uh, travel literature in Persian, uh, in Arabic. And I think there was a, a part of his sort of own personal life uh, that motivated him uh, and uh, to travel because he he wanted to travel, uh, you know, to seek knowledge, right? I mean, the sort of famous uh, travel as, as far as China uh, to seek knowledge. And I mm. think he inherited that that sense uh, from the people around him and the books that he read. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, I think, converge to motivate him. It's interesting, uh, there, in the travelogue, of course, he tells us that uh, the timing was quite coincidental, uh, that he had sort of thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to travel to the Ottoman Empire? Uh, but one afternoon, he tells us, uh, Thomas Arnold, uh, the Orientalist mm. and one of the first editors of the Encyclopedia of Islam, uh, comes into Shibley's office and says, oh, I'm headed back to Europe. And Shibley <laughs> thought, oh, what a great opportunity. I can travel with him right. as far as uh, I think he was tra- planning to travel all the way to Italy with him at the time and then uh, to uh, take the boat from uh, Italy over to uh, to Istanbul, to the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Thomas Arnold would, would go overland to, uh, to England. Uh, so that's his motivation, I think. <laughs> and so Shibli, um, if I recall, I mean, he doesn't speak English or read English. No. And he doesn't uh, speak or read Turkish, mm-hmm. but he lands in Constantinople in, you know, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. And so uh, you can maybe tell us a little bit about his linguistic experience and, and uh, how he made his way around in the Ottoman Empire. Thanks for asking that. I think that's actually one of the most interesting parts of the travel log that I think I was mentioning earlier initially escaped my attention. Uh, and this is going to be a kind of a long, long story. Oh, but, please. Yes. Uh, Go ahead. So, so first, we know from his letters home and from remarks that he makes in the travelogue that he was a little bit frustrated, that he, he couldn't speak Turkish. He tried to learn some Turkish, and we're told that he learned to read Turkish uh, a little bit, and he could read mm-hmm. Turkish n- newspapers and things, and brought some of that literature back to uh, India with him. But he was frustrated uh, that he couldn't communicate with Turkish-speaking uh, people in Istanbul. Uh, but quite early in his journey, uh, and in the initial section of the travelogue, in fact, uh, he uh, comes to meet a group of really of Damascene Sufi scholars living in diaspora, living in mm-hmm, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I read the travelogue, uh, of course, you, you note uh, this encounter. Uh, there's a, a wonderful uh, episode at the beginning of the book in which Shibli tells us that he uh, had uh, brought some copies of uh, a book that he had written on an issue in Hanafi jurisprudence, and um, that uh, one of these Damascene Sufis uh, recognized the book, and Shibli is his mind is blown. The idea, right, that someone would would have uh, read my work in Damascus, right. uh, and uh, we could step back for a moment from mm-hmm. from that episode uh, to reflect a little bit on the ways in which I think that 
there's an idea that knowledge flows from west to east mm. and whether that's a kind of eurocentric west mm. or the the arabic speaking uh, and writing world producing texts that are then uh, so that then uh, travel uh, to south asia there is this idea right of 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 knowledge uh, of Arabic in particular uh, traveling uh, in that direction and that the Arabic that's produced in India really is only relevant to an Indian context. It stays mm, there. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a wonderful uh, moment in the travelogue in which you see knowledge and text not circulating from west to east, but actually from east to west. And it's, it's a moment, I think, for Shibli, and in, uh, kind of a, a revelatory moment of mm -hmm, a certain kind mm -hmm. uh, to see this. And and those two become best friends, the, the one who sees his text, uh, Ali Zabian or Zibyan, mm -hmm. depending on whom you ask. And they, they sort of spend a lot of time together in Istanbul uh, and in uh, Beirut. But what's fascinating is that although when I initially read uh, the book and began working on it, I had, of course, noticed that many of Shibli's friends and interlocutors in Istanbul were Arabic-speaking uh, people, mostly from Damascus, but throughout the really uh, from across the Levant. I realized that, in fact, much of his experiences—that's uh, most of his experiences—and much of what he sees and thinks in the travelogue is actually through the lens mm. of this community and through their social networks and people, Ottoman statesmen, institutions, uh, language abilities that, that they have uh, that uh, Shibli doesn't have or isn't connected to. So the, the, the obvious example of that uh, in the book is that Ali Zabian introduces Shibli to um, Darvesh Pasha, this Ottoman statesman. Mm. Through him, he meets Javdat Pasha. Mm -hmm. uh, and the book, I think, is remarkable in the way for the ways in which it offers glimpses of um, the ways in which these sort of what some have called pan-Islamic networks operated uh, in in Istanbul at the uh, sort of the height of Abdul Hamid's uh, pan-Islamism. Uh, and, you know, some of the words that Shibli reports back in Urdu, oh, here they use mm. this word to refer to this thing. Those words are actually uh, sort of, again, this is the, the benefit of doing uh, deep, close analyses mm. of texts. Those words, when I was sort of looking them up because they were unfamiliar to me, uh, turned out to be, uh, in one case, uh, in Jas, uh, the word for a pair that he reports uh, in the travelogue, turned out to be a, a very particular uh, from a very particular dialect of Arabic, Damascene mm -hmm. Arabic, mm -hmm. they call this in Jas, and Shibli uses the the wrong uh, sir sound for this. He reports uh, that they spell this with seen, but it's spelled with swad. And in Urdu, of course, they don't uh, pronounce those two letters differently, and right. so it makes sense that if he heard it, he might think, "Oh, this is with," so, you know. Anyway, a little bit of speculation, but uh, it, it is remarkable again that he's he's. There are clues in the travel log that his interaction with fruit vendors mm -hmm. and his interaction with the world around him in the city is is filtered uh, and and sort of not determined by but certainly informed to a, a, a great extent by uh, this uh, community of, of people living in in diaspora if that's the right word mm. to, for the time right mm -hmm. I mean they're sort of they've settled into to some extent in Istanbul and are living there so for that reason it's it's I think it's quite remarkable yeah and it's I mean it's a fascinating period not just for the the pan-Islamic element, but I mean, this is also, we know Abdul Hamid is famously paranoid, <laughs> shall mm -hmm. we say. I mean, it was a period of very intense censorship mm -hmm. uh, within the Ottoman Empire. It was also the period of the Arab Nahda, like in 
Beirut and Damascus and, and in Cairo. So it's a really interesting kind of moment in time. And since most of his interlocutors are Arab, you know, he's, he meets some of these very important figures that we associate with the Arab Nahda. And he's also kind of remarking on freedom of information, freedom of speech, uh, educational standards. And I wonder if you can just talk a bit about, um, you know, going along with this question of who are his kind of uh, guides or, or um, intermediaries for this journey. You know, he meets some very recognizable figures and maybe you can talk a bit about what he what he takes from them, and then we can talk about what he doesn't take from us. <laughs> yeah, well, so I initially read and began working on this book with the assumption that it was a key text in Shibley's intellectual life. My main book project is kind of looking at his, uh, his life and some of his ideas, and I thought that this was going to be a key mm, text mm-hmm. for that project. Um, and in, in some ways it is. It gives us new sources for thinking about the transmission of knowledge mm-hmm. across the Ottoman Empire and South Asia. Uh, on the other hand, he meets some very famous figures, Muhammad Abdu uh, being one of them. And yet the extent of influence one way or the other is, is unclear. Mm. So uh, I went through Muhammad Abdu's letters uh, and I didn't find any mention of Shibli in it. it. There may be some mention of this in there, but I, and similarly in Shibli's letters, there's very little mention of Muhammad Abdul. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there, there are limitations, I think, to the significance of those encounters. On the other hand, the some of the lesser known figures that Shibli encounters mm-hmm. uh, become quite important uh, to short and then longer term uh, intellectual projects. I'm always drawn to lesser known figures who were actually probably much more important than the available historical record would allow. And so the intermediary, the interlocutors that Shibli encounters uh, in Istanbul or these kind of, you know, characters who come to the fore uh, beneath the level of Muhammad Abdu and Butrus al-Bustani and kind of these people who just dominate our understanding of, of um, whatever period. I think that's, for me, those are the doors that, that get opened. I agree. And I, I'm glad that you remarked um, on the, the unstudied figures, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, it reminds me that when I began working on this book, I had assumed, I think I mentioned earlier, I had assumed that it was a key text in Shibli's right, intellectual right. life. And then I assumed, because of the way that he talks about these figures, that when I went into the English language scholarship on the history of the Middle East, mm-hmm. late Ottoman Empire, uh, that these would be really well-studied figures. Mm-hmm. And it would be easy to sort of access uh, their intellectual lives and to understand what it was that they were writing and why and who they were. And uh, I was... Uh, sort of shocked to find that the, a large number of the figures in the book who were clearly prominent intellectuals, right. prominent community members, business people, right, right, in their lifetime, really haven't been studied in English. And uh, so the, one of the reasons I sort of joked earlier that it was painful to to annotate yeah. this text, it was a lot of fun. But good, uh, good. but it, it was... But clearly a lot of work. It, it was a lot of work and it took years yeah. of really just uh, three things. One, emailing uh, scholars around the world Mm -hmm. asking questions about who these figures might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a long list of people in the uh, acknowledgments of the book. 
uh, and uh, I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. Uh, but really, uh, finding out who these people were right. became a, a major goal of the project of translating this yeah. text. It's one thing just to translate sentence meaning. It's another thing to to create a, a, a book that allows scholars to kind of think a little bit more about what hasn't been studied and what, what sort of... Um, what, what figures haven't been looked at, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, but uh, basically, so I, I, I emailed scholars. Uh, I did some Google book searches. Yeah. Those did not prove very helpful, no. unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, in Arabic and in uh, English, mm -hmm. it just wasn't very helpful. Uh, and I just went to the library uh, at the University of Texas where I was finishing my PhD. I had a room in the back of the library and spent 12 hours a day in there and uh, you know for an hour a day I wow. would just go through the Arabic biographical dictionaries and right. thumb uh, through them and uh, then here at Berkeley as well just mm -hmm. thumbing through I had to teach myself Turkish so that I could go read uh, some of the Ottoman records that have been published uh, and uh, I still don't read Turkish very well but uh, I needed to do these things because I wanted to bring the stories of these right. people that he encounters uh, into the scholarship uh, and, um, again, you know, one of the things that I discovered was that there are these, um, like figures who were really quite, really quite remarkably influential in their lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, but who have just not been studied uh, either because they live in the shadow of other, uh, figures, uh, or because, uh, the scholarship has focused on, uh, a, a certain set of figures whose exactly. influence is more acutely felt, exactly. uh, in the interwar period in particular, right. um, uh, and have kind of focused on the emergence of their ideas. Uh, and these other scholars have not really been, been studied. At least that was my, mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. experience as a non-Ottomanist, uh, sort of going and, and sort of, uh, encountering the world of Ottoman studies, which is wonderful and rich, but for this, but no, it's, I text, mean, it's absolutely, it's, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that the yeah what you're describing is is pretty acutely felt. Are there any of them that you would that come to mind just for a quick? I don't know why, but Abdul Basit Al Unsi okay uh, is this bookseller in Beirut, uh, whom Shibli seems perhaps to have met when he was on his way to Istanbul. Uh, but then when he comes back, uh, you know, he's headed to Cairo and he stays at Beirut for a while, uh, and uh, he's there to meet. Tahir Maghribi is what he calls him. He's been called by various names. Um, but in, in that process, he, he meets this bookseller, Abdul Basit Al-Unsi. And um, it's pretty clear from the travel log that it's through Abdul Basit Al-Unsi that Shibli is introduced to this network of scholars, uh, journalists, that is academic mm -hmm. journalists, uh, uh, sort of educational reformers, uh, local scholars and poets. And that world seems mm. to revolve for Shibli around Abdul Basit Al-Unsi's mm. bookshop. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know mm. who is Abdul Basit Al-Unsi uh, and, um, you know, uh, what was up with his bookshop in the 1890s? Why are there so many people uh, hanging out at this bookshop? And uh, I couldn't find anything about him in English, nothing. And so I just began digging around, and sure enough, there's actually okay. he produced a, a, a sizable corpus of 
writings of various kinds. Mm -hmm. One is one of which is a guidebook mm -hmm. uh, to Beirut, which has been studied a little bit uh, mm -hmm. in English. There's an, an article that I had found. I think it's it's in the annotations. Mm -hmm. a, a very good article, uh, but uh, a, just about that particular text yeah. and the sort of construction of, of Beirut's urban identity and mm. things. Um, so I found myself uh, digging through biographical dictionaries. And of course, then you enter contradictions uh, I think uh, I have two different death dates for him that are 20 years apart. <laughs> uh, so you have to deal with wow, that. Right? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I emailed some friends who are, have connections to Beirut and they did, couldn't help me, unfortunately. Yeah. There may be more uh, uh, to learn about him uh, in archives. I'm sure there is more to learn about him in archives in Beirut uh, that I'm just not aware of because uh, I haven't traveled there for the book. I wish I had. I tried to, to be honest with you, but it didn't work out. Uh, and <laughs> and um, it's kind of a long dream. I really want to go to Beirut. Uh, anyway, yeah, so there was that. But then I also, I managed to track down uh, the catalogs of his bookshop. Mm -hmm. And that had a little wow. bit of information, just little details. Mm -hmm. You know, when was it founded? Uh, he seems to have been a book distributor first, and mm -hmm. then he opened up a bookstore. Mm -hmm. uh, where was it? Uh, I have kind of a general sense of where it was in the city. Um, and uh, what kind of books was it selling? Uh, and uh, based on those things, and a little bit of biographical information, uh, and some, he, he eventually founded a fairly well-known uh, literary journal, but this was 20 years later. Yeah. And there's been a little bit written on that, which is very good, and uh, that is what's been written about is very good. And so I, uh, I had some details, and I was able to piece together a kind of picture yeah. of who this scholar was, what the significance of his bookshop was, what kinds of books he was selling, um, and what the general trajectory of his intellectual life was, mm. and, and where where the intellectual world of Beirut and at the turn of the 19th century ended up taking him. Uh, and I don't know why, but he's someone that I just oh, I sort of uh, yeah. And you know, I, I should say we were talking earlier, and I, I mentioned that. There was a lot. It was painful, as I keep saying, as a joke, of course, uh, to to annotate this book. Um, but I have to say, it was also a lot of fun. And I think, uh, you know, translating it was was of course a challenge, mm. uh, and you know, took years. And the uh, the frustration of flipping through Tazkira oh literature God, yeah. to try to find someone's name. Uh, it took me, I think, two years to find Aliza Bian, Shibli's wow. companion. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, but I got a little tiny, just a just a tiny sort yeah. of a, a bit of information about him. Th that kind of detective work was challenging and very frustrating, but it was also a great deal of fun. And it reminded me why we study history, yeah. right? To, to kind of uncover these, exactly. you know, wonderful textures of lives mm -hmm. and moments in history that, mm -hmm. that are both very remote from us and yet very familiar to mm -hmm. us. And mm -hmm. that was, I think, the, the great fun of this project. Uh, I think earlier you and I were talking and I, I mentioned that uh, a, a great deal is made of his encounter with Muhammad Abdu. Mm. And Muhammad Abdu is, of course, someone who's been studied extensively yes. uh, in the English language literature. Uh, and uh, I would argue that a, a not more interesting, but certainly not less interesting encounter takes place between Shibli uh, and another uh, scholar in Cairo, uh, Hamza Fatullah. Uh, and Hamza Fatullah had written uh, this uh, book on women in Islam. Mm. And he gives Shibli copies of this. And uh, we learn through the letters that I translate into English in uh, the appendices uh, that he brings copies of this book and gives copies of it to 
an Indian scholar named Mumtaz Ali. And a few years later, Mumtaz Ali writes this work, Hukuk and Isvan, which is a very famous, uh, The Rights of Women, uh, which is a, a, a very important uh, and famous work, uh, sort of Islamic feminism uh, in, in Urdu. Uh, and that connection hasn't been studied. Uh, it's sort of what is, to what extent do Hamza Fatullah's ideas uh, influence Mumtaz Ali's? Mm. Uh, and to set those two books uh, into conversation with each other and to think about that connection between what some scholars these days are calling South-South uh, uh, or East-East uh, intellectual uh, worlds yeah. uh, is something that I think um, I'm hoping that the book um, facilitates. Uh, and um, I think there's a, a growing number of scholars, who, myself included, who are really interested in thinking about the 19th century uh, not exclusively in East-West binaries right. and thinking about uh, the intellectual, I guess we could call it modernity or something, uh, of figures like Shibley. I don't think he would think of it in those terms or in terms of you know modernity uh, necessarily, but thinking about um, their projects uh, not as determined exclusively by some kind of an uh, you know an indigenous uh, Islamic or Arabic or Persian tradition uh, set in uh, or encountering uh, European modernity. Yeah. There, are, there are other ways of thinking about the circulation of ideas that are actually, I think, um, in many cases, much more um, fruitful for thinking about the history of ideas in the period. Here's the text of a letter that Shibli writes to Sayyid Mumtaz Ali. Good sir, salutations. I arrived here yesterday. I received your exalted letter in Egypt on the evening before the morning I departed from Egypt for Hindustan. I could not do anything about the Arabic dictionary, though I did bring a copy of Mukhtar al-Saha. As for your questions regarding women, I hope to earn 100 out of 100 on the examination. Whenever you wish, send the examination papers. An esteemed member of the delegation that went from Egypt to the Oriental Conference, which previously was organized in Stockholm, located in Europe, presented a tract related to women at the conference. Although with respect to its contents and subjects, it is not too valuable. The text and writing is completely like that of the classical writers. In any case, I've brought a copy of it, too, for your exaltedness. I will dispatch both books into your service in a few days. Connection in Turkey. Perhaps you have no need of it now, and doubtless there is no need. Still, if you want to converse about it, I can certainly do so. But the result is that this idea is without benefit. Well, I wrote all this regarding you. Now hear my motives too. You have become an employee. By God, I felt unlimited happiness. I prayed for this from my heart. But tell me this. Will you remain of use to us or not? That is, does one have a break from government work or not? If not, and you, like others, have become merely a scrap of paper in government offices, then I am not so happy. I am playing with the idea of a shared series of writings in which you were to play a purposive part, but I do not know if this can be expected or not, given your situation. Please write your response and write soon. Regards, Traveler of Egypt and Turkey. Thank you.
the period in which Shibli was visiting the Ottoman Empire in Egypt, I mean, it's one of the most studied periods of Ottoman history and of Egyptian history. And yet this is like a really, for historians of the British occupation of Egypt, it's certainly a, a different perspective. And for scholars of the late Ottoman Empire, it's a really unique perspective. Uh, and we were talking a bit about, you know, how Shibli is is certainly aware of all these civilizational categories that we're familiar with, sort of Turk and Arab and, you know, Christian and Muslim. But he doesn't have the kind of progressivist or positivist mentality that we're kind of accustomed to from either the Young Turks or from, uh, you know, European colonialists. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, what do you think that Shibli maybe was hoping to find when he was visiting uh, these kind of great centers of Islamic learning? And then what did he kind of come away from? Mm -hmm. If we, I mean, it's a difficult question because we can't, we can't know, but right. there are some clues, I think. I th yeah, I agree that, that there's certainly a lot of material uh, on the basis of which we can speculate. Um, I think, I think that Shibley was look. I mean, first, first he was looking for, as I mentioned before, he was looking for materials. Sure. He was looking for books and he was looking for sources, right? Um, but I think you're asking a broader question, and uh, he was. I think he was looking to find models of a certain kind of hybridity, uh, a certain kind of mixture of what he considered to be the best of the Islamic tradition, of the Arabic rationalist mm -hmm. tradition, of the Persianate literary tradition, uh, and uh, what he thought of as the best of, uh, let's call it European modernity uh, in his time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that he was frustrated uh, by institutions uh, in the Ottoman Empire um, because he felt that the sort of traditional institutions weren't doing enough to bring the best of the European uh, of European modernity into their curricula. Uh, but he also was disappointed by the modern institutions, which seemed not to value some of uh, you know the literature and the history and the sci the rational sciences mm -hmm. that he valued. And I think that's one thing that makes him a figure that's both difficult to work on mm -hmm. <laughs> in some ways, but also so fascinating mm -hmm. because he doesn't fit neatly into the kinds of modernist versus traditionalist or modernist versus fundamentalist binaries uh, that we've become uh, used to. Uh, in much of the scholarship, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's that wonderful collection of works in translation edited by Muaddal and Talatuf, uh, modernist and fundamentalist debates in Islam. And Shibli is has a little has an, makes an appearance in the in the collection. I think as a modernist, okay. I think in this case, <laughs> but there are other sort of studies that mm. uh, see him as a traditionalist, mm. and I think that's that's really a problem of the categories mm -hmm. and not a problem of Shibli. You know, the, the British occupation was, of course, something that uh, Jamaluddin Afghani and Muhammad Abdu uh, vehemently opposed. Uh, and so uh, Shibli was aware of, mm. the, of the political stakes of these things. Right. Uh, we don't see a lot of that uh, directly mentioned in the travelogue, um, but uh, he certainly was aware of the linguistic difference. Mm -hmm. He was certainly mm -hmm. aware of the political stakes mm -hmm. uh, of... Um, uh, of uh, British presence uh, in Egypt. Uh, and he's uh, critical uh, in the text uh, of uh, colonialism uh, in, in various forms. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, I think in the opening section of the text, uh, he makes uh, uh, some comments about the depiction of, of Muslims and of Turks yeah. uh, in, um, in European literature. Uh, and uh, the criticism that he's making, I think, is remarkable because he's doing it in 1894, mm. around 1894, when mm -hmm. he's writing. Um, and, of course, uh, this is something that uh, just seems very in line with the Said's criticisms and critiques in the 1970s. I mean, the depiction of this kind of other, the projection of a certain kind of um, fantasy mm -hmm. uh, onto the Orient, the fact that people who are being talked about in this way uh, don't recognize themselves uh, in the, the language of this literature, the political implications of that projection. Uh, and um, by the way, it's, I think it's also remarkable that he identifies uh, Fatima Aliye uh, as the kind of um, intellectual inspiration for that argument mm, in the travel mm -hmm. log. And this tells us something about the way in which ideas are being transmitted and received, I think. Yeah. Uh, that Fatima Aliye uh, writes this book on women in Islam. Shibli finds an Arabic translation. Uh, he is inspired by the project of this book to make it the kind of framework of his travel log mm. uh, and uh, is very direct in the way in which he's uh, sort of citing her and engaging her ideas. And then, of course, that text uh, is translated, her text is translated into Urdu uh, just a few mm -hmm. laters and published from Aligarh. And I can't but imagine that Shibli had some role uh, in having that translated. Yeah. Um, and so, again, uh, more evidence of this sort of circulation of ideas of a certain kind of modernity, uh, if we want to call it that, which is emerging uh, in the Ottoman Empire and the ways in which that's being received uh, in, in, uh, in British India, right. um, uh, whether it be uh, in the form of these uh, Arabic language uh, journals uh, uh, being read uh, at the college where Shibli teaches, and Shibli, of course, is teaching them, or uh, sort of uh, among scholars and the circulation of these uh, new ideas about um, Muslim identity, mm -hmm. uh, the relationship between uh, what Shibli thought of as uh, Islamic civilization and mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And, uh, you know, thinking of, of, of distance and proximity, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about Shibli's critique and this balance of, mm. or not balance, but sort of this this position that he has, um, in which he's comfortable with European modernity. Right. He's comfortable with Islamic tradition, and he sees no reason why right. uh, a rational, critical mind can't sort of bring these two traditions into confluence. Right. I mean, this is sort of one of his agendas in his intellectual life. Um, but as a as a as a researcher and a scholar, mm. when he goes to the Ottoman Empire, he uh, he's he's frustrated by things uh, that he sees there. Some of which are tied to that broader agenda: tradition, modernity, Europe, Islamic tradition, Arabic, etc. But some of which are just frustrations that he faces as a research scholar. Mm. He doesn't have access <laughs> to manuscripts, mm -hmm. or he's frustrated with the fact that the scholars in the area just keep reading the same set of books. You know, this sort of narrow canon of Arabic rational training that right. people are getting, and he wants people to read history, and he thinks poetry is important, and that's a critique that feels quite familiar to me uh, as <laughs> and someone. To who, many of our listeners, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, right. I mean, you know. The, the sort of to uh, to advocate for capaciousness right and to be to be frustrated by 
the presence of this vast archive of material mm. she encounters mm -hmm. and the total lack of attention toward it. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think that doesn't feel so remote in time or... Uh, Last no. I mean, right? Uh, and, and, and so there are those moments also in the travelogue. Yeah. Um, and there are other figures that I, I would have liked to learn more about uh, who appear here and there in the travelogue. Uh, as but well. perhaps inspiration for for future for future <laughs> projects. I mean, for other mm. listeners or for other scholars or for yourself. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's such a valuable addition to, I mean, the the primary source canon for this period, which begins to be a little bit repetitive or a little bit um, overdone, perhaps. So this is a a really amazing. Uh, you're very kind to say oh, that. Oh, hard. No, I mean, this has been an incredibly valuable conversation. It's a really valuable book. And and the work that you did to put together these uh, biographies and the, and the letters at the back, I think, are as precious as the text itself because it, I mean, it's a very human glimpse into, into this period that I think just kind of gets sucked into the, the void of colonial questions of power and that maybe weren't weren't the obsessive obsessive focus of everyone who lived through it at the time as always uh you can go to our website ottomanhistorypodcast.com uh max is going to provide us with a, a short bibliography of related works to uh learn a bit more about shibley and his world uh the text of the letter that was uh read earlier in our conversation will also be available and thank you so much for listening tune in next time for the ottoman history podcast and max thank you so much for thank being with so us thank you so much it's been just wonderful thank you thanks